I'd like for you to turn to James chapter 4 this evening. James chapter 4. As we consider drawing at the end of a year and the beginning of another year. As a pastor, if there's any one thing that I could do or cause, it would be that each one of us would seek the Lord in a daily, fervent way. There's no replacement for this. We hear about reading our Bibles and praying and seeking the Lord's face, but it is the absolute most essential element of the Christian life. And I fear it's one that many people struggle with. And this is in by no ways to heap guilt or anything like that. But this lifeline of necessity of feeding upon the Lord's Word, if God will speak to you, it will be through His Word. And as you pour your heart out before Him and in praise and adoration in your own prayer life, the request he tells us to daily ask for our needs, our our daily uh, portion, our daily bread, and that includes that all areas of life that we need, not just our food. I have many people ask me to pray for several things and several prayer requests, but I have yet to have anyone that I know of say, Pastor, would you pray with me that I would absolutely become so bankrupt in heart, so poor of spirit that the Lord could do a work in my heart, that the Lord by His Spirit would absolutely show me every and any and all sin, that He would break me. I have all kinds of requests. I hear all kinds of requests and receive them and gladly pray for them. But the the requests of the Spirit, these spiritual matters, which should be first and foremost on our hearts, are, are usually far, far down the list on prayer requests at any prayer meeting. And yet the things of the Spirit, the inner man who should be growing day by day, I'm afraid, is languishing and and becoming very anemic and anorexic spiritually, while the outer man is very well cared for. We do all that we can to make sure the outer man is cared for. We hear much about revival, or in times past, or people speaking of movements or the blessing of the Lord. They may not even use that old-fashioned term anymore, the, the term revival, but what is it? How would we know it if we were to see it? And, and how is it obtained? These are questions that believers have grappled with since the beginning of the church. James tells us in James chapter 4, verse 1, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Could Come they not hence even of your lust that war in your members? You lust, and you have not. You kill, and desire to have, and cannot obtain. You fight, and war, yet you have not, because you ask not. What a, what a statement. You don't have what you need spiritually, because you do not ask for it. You ask what we do pray for, and receive not. He tells us the reason, so often, is because you ask amiss, off base. That you may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is hatred, enmity, warfare with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. How clear could that be? And yet the church is so worldly today, looks so much like the world and acts so much like the world that there's no distinguishing mark at all. I was thinking today as I was studying the church at Corinth. I cannot conceive of the apostle saying, we need to go down to the temple of Athena and, uh, and study what they're doing there because they're getting all kinds of crowds. And maybe if, maybe if we mimic what's going on at the temple of Athena or Zeus or any of the other uh, temples that adorned all their cities, they have crowds there, the incense they burn, they're, like, they're racking in the sacrifices and the offerings down there. We ought to go and mimic that and see what we can do and, and Christianize it and, and, and call, put some Christian words to it and maybe we could attract that crowd the early church was never, ever consumed with attracting a crowd for the sake of attracting a crowd. You would never hear that kind of mindset that is permeates the church today. The worldliness of the church today was an absolute foreign thing uh, to the believers of the first century that James is writing to. Friendship with the world, to be, friend, to be of the world, the world's mindset, the way the world does things, is to be what? What does he tell us here? It's to be hostility, enmity, hatred with God. Do you think that the Scripture saith for nothing in vain? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit that dwells in us, lusts to envy. For what does He lust for? He strongly desires to control us. But He giveth more grace. 
Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud. And the word there, resist, is a military term. He's arrayed against. He is armed against the proud, prideful. But giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted. Afflict yourselves. This is not flagellation. This is not some kind of sadistic things. But spiritually, by the mirror of the Word and the microscope of the Word, and ask the Holy Spirit to examine us and try us and know our hearts. Be afflicted over what? Mourn over what? Your pride. Your lack of love for the Lord. The the, the worldliness that we all fight. And worldliness is not something that's put on or that kind of thing. The worldliness is an attitude of heart. It is loving and wanting to emulate the pattern, the mindset, the philosophy of the lost anti-system that's around us. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy be turned to heaviness. Humble yourself. See, these words are the, quite the opposite of prideful. Prideful people don't weep and mourn in public. You know, prideful people don't let your laughter be turned to mourning or humble themselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Speak not evil, one of another, brethren. Isn't it interesting in this catalog of things that James is exposing there to the church at Jerusalem that he uses this, uh, in verse 11, this thing of speaking evil of one another, something that, that we as humans are so tempted and prone to do. But over and over again, it is quoted throughout the scriptures, speak evil of no one. And here he repeats uh, a quote from Moses, speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law, the word of God, which tells us, of course, not to do this very thing. And judgeth the law. Can you imagine sitting in judgment on God's word, which is perfect and eternal and lifted higher than his own holy name? But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's one lawgiver. We know who he is, don't we? One who gave the law, who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? Go to now ye that say, and again he illustrates what he means by pride. And here we have an illustration of someone who's got it all figured out. They've got not 2016 already in their plan book. They've got it on the spreadsheet. They know what they're going to do, how much they're going to make, where they're going to be on Tuesday, July the 5th or whatever. They know what they're, I mean, they've got it planned to the nth degree. And he tells us here that it's pride. It's not prideful to plan. It's prideful to plan without God. And he says, go to now, ye that say, and evidently there was a, uh, this was quite a problem among the people that he was addressing. Uh, Tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there for a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on tomorrow. Can anybody tell me what's going to happen tomorrow? Not one person in this room can do that. Except the sun will rise if the Lord allows it to. That's about it. The earth will still be spinning if God does not suspend the laws of gravity. In fact, none of us can can tell us anything that will take place tomorrow. For what is your life? What a question as we close out a year and look with prospect to a year looming before us. What is your life? Well, this takes the window out of ourselves. What he says next is a vapor. It's a mist. It's a fog that's here for a while. And, do, and then it is for a little time and then vanishes away. When the sun rises, it melts away the fog. For you, that you ought to say, if the Lord will. But you say that with me, if the Lord will. That's our mantra, isn't it? If the Lord will. In fact, the Lord's will is the most important thing about anything. What saith the Lord? What does? That's what Glen Iris Baptist Church ought to be concerned with on this, the brink of this year. What is the Lord's will for us? Now, we know a lot of what's God's will for us is very clearly uh, outlined for us in his word. But we want to know in all the nuances, all the little seemingly insignificant areas that people think, oh, you're being too scrupulous about. What is the Lord's will for us? 
But I'll tell you where you'll find it. You won't find it in the Wall Street Journal or People magazine or on Facebook or on Pinterest. You'll find the Lord's will in his word in that alone. If the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now you rejoice in your boastings. That, that is a, a, a very typical summary of American public. You rejoice in your boasting. Who's the best? The best of 2015. Who is the highest, the best, the richest, the whatever? You know, we have these lists that people ooh and ah over. You rejoice in your boasting. And what does he tell us? All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, and we know a lot, don't we, about what would please the Lord with these bodies and these lives and these minds. He that knoweth to do good and doeth it not. This is a presumptuous, I will not. I know what the Bible says, but, and does it not. To him it is sin. James is the half-brother, if you want to use that kind of terminology, of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us, and there's several listings, but one is in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, where they ask about Jesus. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Many think that James was the firstborn of Mary and Joseph's children. He did not come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ until after the resurrection. John chapter 7 tells us that. Mark chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 15, 7 says, After that, being seen of 500 brethren, he was seen of James and then of all the apostles. His letter is the oldest New Testament document. And some people down through history have pointed to James as being hard or austere. There have been all kinds of comments made about the book of James. And I, I, I say this to that hogwash. <laughs> it is the word of God. And there are parts of God's word that are very stern, that are very clear. He uses blunt language, doesn't he? He makes menses, no words. The Holy Spirit always uses the personality of the human authors he allows that and superintends that in the writing of the Word of God. James is a leader in the church at Jerusalem. He became a pillar, if you will, of the church there. He moderated the first church conference. Remember when they were discussing what to do with the Gentiles? What would they require the Gentiles? James chaired that uh, conference. And when Peter was delivered from prison in Acts 12, verse 17, he sent a special message to James. And I mention that because James must have held uh, high authority in the leadership of the apostles, of the, or, uh, among the apostolic people, among the leaders of the church. When Paul visited Jerusalem, it was to James that he brought greetings and the special love offering that he collected from the Gentiles. He must have been a deeply spiritual man. Paul hints in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 5 that James was married because there he says, have we not power to lead about a sister or wife? Although Paul did not have a wife, he says we have the, the, the privilege, we could, if we have the blessing of the Lord, do we not have power or the authority or permission, if you will, to lead about a sister or a wife as well as the other apostles? Evidently all the other apostles were married and as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas. James wrote to address problems in the early church, and he teaches about spiritual maturity. Each chapter deals with an area of spiritual maturity. Do you want to know if you're spiritually mature? I would recommend to you a good study of the book of James at the beginning of this year. If you're looking for something for in-depth study, this would be because each chapter deals with an area of the inner life that would help us to know whether we're spiritually mature. Chapter 1 deals with trials. I guess what? I'm a, I can prophesy that we will all have trials this year. Uh, do you think that that's true? I think it's true of some more severe than others, but we've not been through a year yet without trials. And I can, uh, I can assure you that all of us will endure trials in the coming year. And so chapter one tells us, how do you react to trials? How do you uh, bear up under them when they come your way? And it shows us the mature believer is patient in trials. Patient is listed as the queen of the virtues, if you will, of the spiritual graces of the Christian life. Patience. In chapter 2, 
he tells us that the mature believer practices the truth. He doesn't just talk about it and have conferences about it and go to Bible studies about it and have notebooks filled with stuff. He practices what he's been taught. In chapter 3, he has power over his tongue. A mature believer, a spiritual believer, watches what they say. They do not have loose lips. He mentions in this chapter about the, the uh, tongue speaking evil of another. In chapter 4, he talks about a mature believer being a peacemaker. Uh, he's not a troublemaker. He's a peacemaker wherever he's found, in his home, in his church, at work, wherever he is. In chapter 5, he is prayerful in troubles. We look to chapter 4, though, at our emphasis tonight, where James deals with spiritual problems that block revival, that block closeness to the Lord. And I preached on the Lord's Day evening about how it, when sin comes into a believer's life, it seems as if the Lord has left us. That glorious text, I will never, no, never, ever leave thee nor forsake thee. But it does seem like he has on our part when we do not deal with sin as the Bible tells us to. Sin is what blocks revival. It is not as if the Lord does not want his church revived. How cruel would it be, and I say that guardedly, for God to say, I'm building my church. He established the church. He's given us the blueprint of what the church should do and how his business should be carried out, how we ought to know how to behave ourselves in the house of God. It would be unfeeling of our Lord to do that and want us to be listless, lifeless, and lack of zeal. You see, those deficits are on our part, not on his He's always, as we saw Sunday morning, merciful, willing to forgive, quick to, to show us His mercy and His grace. And the fact that a, a church, an individual, is unrevived or lethargic spiritually is on our part, not the Lord's part. The Lord's church should be a revived organism. We are not an organization. We are a body. We are an alive, the body of Christ. And we should have life. Every part of your body should have life. Circulation. Any part of your body that does not, guess what's happening to that part of your body? It is dying. It is no different in the spiritual body of Christ. There should be any lethargy, any paralysis, any slowness shows a deeper problem in the system. Just as it would in your own body if your hand didn't work all of a sudden. If you woke up and your arm wouldn't move or was numb, you would think, well, it's either falling asleep or it would indicate a stroke or something uh, serious. And so those things we don't take lightly. But spiritually, we just coast alone and, and, and think, well, that's just the way I am. That's the way other believers are that I know. And, and that lack of zeal becomes something that we just get used to. I would tell you that an unrevived person, an unrevived church is one that has just coasted along and become used to the status quo. And that's something every day we should stir ourselves up, shouldn't we? Every day we should stir up the gift of God that has been placed within us. How do we do that? By emotionalism? By listening to your favorite worship song? That's not how that's done. It is done by taking the Word of God and applying it, reading it, crying out to Him, show me, search me, feed me, and teach me your Word. He gives three sources for bad behavior among people who even though they profess to know the Lord, their lives contradict it. Spiritual adultery, what a horrible, that word adultery is a horrible word that stabs our hearts, doesn't it? Spiritual adultery ought to be much more horrendous to us than the physical adultery, which is horrible. Spiritual adultery, wrong praying, and wrong desires. The three major problems of chapter 4 that block spiritual progress, or what we would refer to as revival. I want us to look at them backwards, if you will, first of all, because the scripture does. Wrong desires. He outlines these from us, for us in verses 1 and 2. Where do the problems, the struggles within you, where do they come from? Wrong desires. Have you come to the place in your life where you can truly say, Lord, I don't want anything or any body that you don't want me to have. I desire only exactly what you want me to have. 
You see, wrong desires leads to problems. They lead to problems with other people that we think are blocking us getting what we want. And problems in our relationship with the Lord because if He was good and merciful and gracious, He would give us what we think we should have or want, the desire. A battle was raging within them. He describes it in very graphic terms, doesn't he? Wars and fightings. These are, these are hand-to-hand combat kind of words. But he's meaning it in an inner way, a spiritual way, that will often show itself in, in arguments, fightings, and problems between uh, believers. Our own carnal desires, which are, we wake up with every day and carry with us throughout the day, must be dealt with. You cannot coddle the flesh. The Bible says to absolutely make no provision for the old man. Accommodate him in no way. Our own carnal desires and lusts are often all that is needed to stir up strife and to keep our families and our churches in a turmoil. Ask yourself, is what you are desiring really worth all the turmoil and strife that it's bringing? You'd think that people would come to that conclusion, wouldn't you? I'm beating my head against the wall for this. How's that working for me in this relationship? at work or in the church or whatever it may be. We ought to ask ourselves on these things that we're getting so red in the face about, so determined over, will it matter 20 years from now, this thing that's that's guiding me, got me all stirred up? Will it matter in heaven? That's the greater question, isn't it? Will I be concerned about this in heaven? If I were to die today, how, how important would it be? If not, why not lay it down and walk away from it? Remember, it's not who's right. We spend our lives saying, I'm right, I'm right, you're wrong. But what's right? And in all things, we're to ask ourselves the question, what saith the Lord? Lust is a real strong word here. We use it only, almost only, in a negative, fleshly, sexual way. But the word here means any compelling or controlling strong desire and you just you know you can be appetites for food different things in life it covers the gamut it's a strong mental physical desire and it may not it may be for something if you're really if you worked all day out in the yard or worked out or ran a marathon you'd have a lust for water i mean it's not necessarily a bad thing it's just it is a desire peaked to a a a, a strong strong compelling level and he uses this controlling, uh, driving compulsion that Satan always appeals to. Once we realize how Satan works, I mean, it's not, I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know how he works. In fact, he tells us, the only thing he tells us to do to Satan, we find here in this portion of Scripture, we're to resist him. And that's comforting to know because what we are told to do in the Scriptures, we always can do. God never gives a command that we cannot keep or that He does not give the grace for us to keep. And the Bible tells us in Peter how this resisting, what it looks like. Resist Him how? In how? The faith. Whom resists in the faith. He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. What does a roaring, roaring lion or wild animal look for? Wounded uh, unwatching, innocent, uh, helpless people. Satan always looks for you when you're not looking, when you're off base, when you're you know, not yourself, when you're lifted up with pride or thinking you've got it made. Sometimes, most often, it's after a great spiritual experience. You finish reading the last chapter of your Bible study list, you check the you know, Revelation off the list, and then you just, you know, oh, I can't believe I did that, or whatever it is. Prayers answered. That's often at those times of great spiritual accomplishment, success, however you want to describe it. Bam! Because we're caught off guard. Do you know that even in times of, of, of devotion, of worship, Satan will come with his fire darts. He's never, nothing is off limits to him. We, we kind of, you know, draw, I'm at church now, leave me alone, does he? I'm in the prayer closet. I've got my Bible open. Does the fire dart stop there? No. I mean, Satan will invade the most sacred, holy place. He doesn't care. We're to resist him. How do we do that? 
We're not to bind him. We're never told to bind the devil. Is he bound? He's, he, he's been out all day long as far as I'm concerned. I can see today. He, and he has in Chris Lamb's life. If I bound him, I didn't tie it very tight. And I, all that mumbo jumbo that people use are absolutely ludicrous. We use Bible terms. We do what the scripture tells us to do, don't we? We're never told to bind him. The binding and loosing is church discipline. Okay, that's what it's talking about. I don't know where people draw that into. I'll share with you about the woman who came up to me one time and she asked me about something in the church. I was at a funeral and she said, well, have y'all moved? Or I think she was asking us about our, our building or something. I said, no. I said, just the Lord hasn't brought that to pass. And, you know, some answer that she said, well, we need to bind that. And that's exactly where we're right there at the pulpit almost going out and she began to pray to bind and you know claim and all this kind of stuff and you know i just let her pray and to bind the devil as she was blaming it on the devil you know we jumped to all kinds of idiotic conclusions and so she went through all of her rigmarole and all i could think of is this verse to resist steadfast in the faith now where does the faith come from help me out church faith cometh by hearing you're in a good place tonight to have your faith uh, bolster and hearing comes by what the word of god simply put well we see not only do we see the wrong desire secondly we see the wrong praying now we're at a prayer meeting but we can pray wrong and james is very clear about it the biggest problem is not praying at all prayerlessness leads to lethargy lack of zeal you can trace all of your all of our problems are problems of the heart, spiritual problems. One problem is not praying at all. The last part of verse two says, "You ask, you have not, because you ask not." So that's not praying, isn't it? They're not they're not pr- using this the most precious resource that we have as a child of God. How gracious is of our Lord to say, "Who is the Creator and Sustainer of all things? Ask of me, call unto me, and I'll answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not." How gracious of Him to give, tell us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But then He says, "All power is given to me in heaven and earth. Ask of me. Ask me to help you." Then there's the failure to pray properly. And verse three says, "You ask and receive not. Why?" I want to know why. I'm very concerned about that in Chris Lamb's life because I have much to pray over, much to oversee. Lord, why am I not seeing answers to prayer? And by the way, every child of God ought to see regularly answers to prayer. That's part of the spiritual life. I didn't say, you know, ask the Lord for Mercedes and it be delivered. You know, that's not the kind. That's asking a miss. That's exactly what I'm talking about is asking a miss. Lord, show me my sin. I can tell you prayers he'll answer. Lord, show me my sin. Lord, help me to hunger and thirst after you more. Lord, for, show me, forgive me for my lack of repentance. Give me a repenting heart. That's praying aright. Lord, help me to see spiritual truth. Lord, help me to respond biblically and spiritually in these relationships as a father, a husband, whatever it may be. He says one of the reasons we don't pray right is we ask wrong. We miss the, the mark and that you may consume it upon your own lusts. Lord, give me a Mercedes because it'll make me look good or whatever the, the, the thing would be. I know that's a, 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 a kind of a weird example there, but it shows us that we do sometimes our prayer requests. Did we stop to think, is this the will of God? Is this what God wants for me? Would it make me a better believer? Would it make me a more spiritual person? Would it be, make me more effective in my witnessing for the Lord? The Bible is full of admonishments and examples to pray. Turn over to chapter 5, if you will. Look down in verse 13. What a por- precious portion of Scripture. He says, is there any among you that are afflicted? Let him pray. That's the answer to affliction, whatever it may be. Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith shall save the sick. But let me just go on to say that one of the reasons for the calling of the elders of the church is to help that one examine where they are spiritually. Because he says, he goes on to confess your faults. If you've committed sins, anytime we as the leadership of the church are asked to pray for people, part of what we do in that, that meeting is to ask the Lord to show us our own Anything that would hinder the answering of this prayer. You know, unconfessed sin, presumptuous sin. 
confess your fault and pray for one another that you may be healed. And what does he tell us in the latter part of verse 16? What a beautiful promise. I quote this often. The effectual, fervent, not a lackadaisical, unfeeling prayer. How must our Lord despise some of our prayers? So lethargic, so canned, so unfeeling. I mean, if you, if you talk to your wife like that, I don't think you'd get a kiss out of her. If you came with so unfeeling, you know, you're the most precious thing in the world to me. I mean, we, we understand what realness is. You know, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth what? Much. Many answers. All kinds of answers from the Father of lights. He tells us in chapter 1, every good and perfect gift comes from where? The Father above, who, who is, there's no shadow of turning. And so, this over and over again, men ought, Jesus said, men ought always to pray, not to faint. And uh, We go on through, we could just give all kinds of examples that you know of. Prayer is a mysterious thing. I wouldn't begin to tell you I understand it. It's a miracle. Every answered prayer is a miracle when you think about it. It's one of the laws of the universe that that is greater than the physical laws of the universe. It's as real and as functional as the law of electricity or gravity or light or any other law that you might study in the, in the physical universe. God takes our prayers into consideration just as he takes the laws of chemistry or physics or medicine into consideration. It's an absolutely amazing thing. He weighs all the factors of matter, of time, of space into the balances of his eternal purposes. And at the same time, he takes into account all the features of our nature, our persons, our personalities, along with all the facets of our minds, our hearts, his will. It's a miracle any time a prayer is answered. And how often we find out the prayer even before we asked, the answer was on its way. Or when we, when we got done praying, as the early church did at a prayer meeting, their prayers were answered even as they were praying. With all of this, he takes into consideration our prayers. But he never violates his sovereign and perfect will to answer our prayers. Did you know that the prayers of God's people are a major factor in the great equation of his involvement in the affairs of this world? What a mysterious thing it is. We cannot fully understand it, but or fully explain it, but God has chosen to use the means of, pray, of prayer. Please note that word means. The Bible says the preaching of the gospel. Go to all the world and preach the gospel. Herald the gospel to every creature. The, the preaching, God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. It's a mysterious th thing that God chose the method of preaching, which has fallen on hard times in the modern church. The modern church would much more be have a concert on the eve of, of the new year than they would to hear the word of God preached. But God tells us to preach his word, tell it, explain it, exhort, encourage with all long suffering and doctrine. That's how the church will be saved, revived, Built, equipped. That's why we cannot fully under explain it, but God has chosen to use the prayers of his people to move and work in the midst of this world. That's why when we, we pray, for example, you hear us often quote, the king's heart is in whose hands? It's in the hand of the Lord. But he tells us to pray so that he'll move the king's heart. Now, I can't explain to you why, except that him to show us one of the things that shows us how mighty and powerful he is when we ask him to do something that he said he would do, then he does it. That's why we should pray believingly about everything. Please leave unbelief at the door, in the car, or somewhere else when you come to a prayer meeting. We, we should pray about everything. Our families, our, the salvation of lost people, the, our jobs, our effectiveness, our lives, our nation. Yes, God answers prayers at prayer meeting for, for nations, our economy, for revival. On and on we could go. The list includes everything that pertains to us. That's why the prayer meeting of the church ought to be taken seriously and regarded highly. That's why whether or not our church will be blessed in 2016 will be linked with the prayerfulness of, of, of God's people here at Glen Iris. I believe with all my heart. A person's attitude toward prayer, I can tell you where they are spiritually, and it's not because I'm any 
great judge of things because of God's word, I can tell you where a person is spiritually by their attitude toward prayer and the praying of God's people. It grieves me when I hear God's people make light of praying or long praying or the prayer meeting or any of those kind of things. It just shows me you're just, you're just announcing how spiritually inept you are, how far off you are from where you should be. A person's attitude in, in toward and commitment to prayer reveals their true spiritual condition. For example, I, we just want to give a brief example of how God works in this way. When the Lord revealed to Abraham that he was going to destroy a city, that's a major thing, isn't it? That's the affairs of men, <laughs> a whole city. He lets Abraham in on it. Why? Well, all I can understand, all I can account for, and I don't know everything, but I do know this. God said this about Abraham, I know him. I know he'll order his family aright. And so if God so knows Abraham, which by the way, what was his nickname? Friend of God. A friend knows what another friend wants, likes, is going to do. They know about their friend, don't they? And Abraham's called the friend of God. When he gets ready to do major, a major work of judgment on earth, he lets Abraham in on it. He sends heavenly visitors to Abraham's door. Do you know why? Because he knows Abraham will do what? Will pray. And that's exactly what Abraham did. He interceded on behalf of Lot. Now, God moved Abraham to pray, to ask him to do or to spare Lot. We might ask why. I don't know. But he did. And what did Abraham do? He prayed. He he prevailed in prayer before the Lord, and God ultimately did what? He spared Lot and his family. In 2 Kings chapter 6, Elisha prayed that the Lord would open the eyes of his companion to see what the magnificent and invincible forces that protected them. Don't we pray, Lord, open the eyes of lost people around us. Open our eyes to spiritual things. That's a, that's a very biblical prayer to pray. In 2 Samuel 15, David prayed that God would turn the wicked counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Remember, Ahithophel was counseling Absalom. And he said, turn his counsel to foolishness. That's a good, that's a, try that one, pray that one. Lord, they're listening to the wrong person. Turn it to foolishness. We all have people, friends, loved ones. They're listening to the wrong people, aren't they? Somebody's feeding this, this trash, this junk. And Abraham saw that, I mean, David saw that Ahithophel was advising Absalom wrongly. He said, Lord, turn it to foolishness. Take that and put that on your prayer list. Turn the counsel of that one who's counseling my love and turn it to foolishness. When he joined in David's rebellious, with his rebellious son, and God answered that prayer by sending a man named Hushai to defeat that counsel. All because David prayed. Hezekiah prayed when the army of the Assyrians surrounded Jerusalem in 2 Kings 17 through 19. His prayer was answered instantly and miraculously and not an arrow was shot. When Daniel prayed in Daniel chapter 2, remember he was called to interpret the king of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. What's the first thing Daniel did? Lord, help me. And I'm paraphrasing here. Show me what to be able to decipher and discern. I've been told that, that they've told Nebuchadnezzar that I can do this. I can't do anything that you don't help me do. By the way, you can't either. We can't do it. We can't even walk without him holding our hand. We can't, we can't stand up aright and, and utter two sound words or have two sound thoughts without the Lord enabling us. And we, we, we ought to pray, Lord, help me to walk right, talk right, help me to go before the boss and say the right thing. All that is, needs our prayers. Every part of our lives. And when Nebuchadnezzar said, tell me what I need to know. What did Daniel, Daniel, I'll go in there and tell him what he needs to know. No, he said, Lord, show me so I'll know how to answer the king. Ezra prayed for divine protection when he led a contingent of Jews back to Jerusalem in Ezra 8. Nehemiah prayed when the word came that Jerusalem was in desolate condition. Remember those first chapters of Nehemiah? He began to pray, Lord, Lead us and guide us. We need to go back and build it. He just didn't run to Jerusalem and start something. He prayed before he went. The Lord unfolded. As he, as he prayed, the Lord changed the, the, his authority's hearts to let him go back. And helped, even helped. You see what prayer does? 
the Psalms are full of powerful prayers and is a, just a reservoir of examples and how we should pray and what we should pray for. The early church prayed and stayed in a continual prayer meeting. It was that in preaching of the Word of God was the prominent focus and emphasis of the early church. The Bible tells us in Acts 2, 42, they continued, that means just kept on without ceasing, steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. The fellowship was working together harmoniously in the gospel, getting the gospel out, the work of the Lord. It denotes that they partnered together to get out the gospel and, and, and associate to associate with and a part of partaker participating together, giving resources together. And by the way, our, our Gospel of John's would be mailed out, I think, the 15th of January. So that date, we need to mark on our calendars in the days following that those people, some 50,000, will be receiving God's Word. We ought to be just in fervent prayer for that. We've raised the money. It's taken such an arduous thing to raise the money. And so many have joined in and to... to uh, to help us get that done. And we've just gotten word. It's about to be mailed out. From now to then, we should just permeate and just beg the Lord to prepare the hearts and the homes of those who's going to... Isn't the Word of God the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth? Oh, just think of the great uh, need and the great results it could be about. But God will do it based on our prayers. The, the, the New Testament pattern of the church, they work together, laboring closely together. They continued in Bible teaching steadfastly, faith regularly, and observing the ordinances in powerful praying. The, the true church has always prayed we should pray. The tradition tells us, if you read Fox's book of martyrs, you will find that James was, had a nickname. He was called O Camel Knees. They said that his knees were looked like a camel's knees. They were so callous because he spent so much time on, in prayer. People are always wanting the church to start something. From time to time, people say, Pastor, we need to start this. We need to start this. We need to start this. And uh, I'm, I'm for things that are good, and there's a, certainly there's some needful things, but why not start a prayer meeting? Why not attend a prayer meeting? Why not give yourself over to pray for what we have started that the Lord would revive it and bless it and show His arms strong and mighty in all that He's entrusted to us and raised up in our midst. In chapter 4, verse 3, He says, You ask and you ask off base. You're so far off base, it's horrible. Because you ask amiss or wrongly. Why? So that you may consume it upon your own lust. The word amiss there in the Greek is the word kakos, and it means depraved. Something bad in its very nature. Prayer is not a magic incantation. I, I fear that some of God's people look at it superstitiously, almost like a, a magic potion, saying the right words, just uh, in that kind of way, guaranteeing whatever. And I, you hear some people preaching and teaching on that. You can have whatever you want. Pray, you can, you, and they... They have all kinds of superstitious, erroneous, really uh, demonic teaching about something very sacred and precious. Prayer has its rules, doesn't it? And James gives us some here. It's a powerful, it can accomplish, any, think about it. your prayers can go where you cannot go. You can go to the very throne room of God and God from the, his eternal throne room can direct, change a heart, move a nation Call Caesar to cause the taxation to get a couple to, to down to, to Bethlehem so that Jesus can be... I mean, all of that's in answer to, to God's mighty power. Your prayers can do what you could never do. That's the most amazing thing about it. Our Lord taught us to pray, Thy will be done. The will of God is the most important thing in eternity. We treat it so lightly. He reveals to us His will, doesn't He? All that we need to know is revealed to us in His Word. There are guidelines to prayer. It must be in accordance to God's will. God will never lead a, do something that's not in His will. And His Word tells us what His will is. In Matthew 26, verse 39, even the Lord Jesus Christ prayed, O my Father, if it be possible, nevertheless, not as I will, but as Thou wilt. What an amazing statement. Look down in verse 15 of this, this chapter. 
where we're just studying and and in our praying and planning, we ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live. Because if he doesn't will, you certainly won't live. And do this or that. Psalm 66, verse 19, if I regard iniquity in my heart, if if I coddle, if I make excuse for sin, the Lord will not hear me. We're to pray in Jesus' name, aren't we? We're to go to the Father in the name of the Savior because He's paved the way. We have a high priest who's, who cried out, It is finished because it was. The way to, to we can go boldly to the throne of grace. Why? Because of the work that Jesus Christ accomplished for us on the cross. We ought to always go to the Father in the name of the Son. John 14, 13 through 14, and John 15, 16. And James 5, 16 tells us that our praying should be what? What's the one word he says our prayer should be like? Fervent. Now, sometimes fervency is like spirituality. We think it as a certain action, a certain emotion. But something that is fervent is alive and faithful and regular and just stays with it. Your heart is fervent. Aren't you glad of that? It's beating even as we speak regularly, supplying what every part of the body needs. It's a good example, in my mind, of what fervent is. A continual keeping on, praying about these things until the Lord changes the circumstances or answers or tells us clearly that if someone dies, clearly we should stop praying for that person. But we're to pray until either he answers or changes the circumstances so drastically that the need of that prayer is no longer there or to keep on until... He calls us home. Let me ask you, the word fervent there in the Greek means zeal, heated, hot, boiling, glowing, earnest. Sounds like a fire, doesn't it? Continuing. Let me ask you a question as we close here tonight. Does that describe your prayer life? No wonder the Lord does not answer. He doesn't think we mean it. He knows whether we do or not. Prayer has various forms. It can be confession. It can be repentance. It can be supplication, request. It can be petition, adoration, worship. All those elements are found in prayer and are described to us in the outline of prayer that our Lord gave his disciples. James has in mind here specifically prayer, the prayer of petition. Asking God for things, especially only what he can provide. And, and really, that's what prayer meetings are about. Lord, we're asking you to do what you only can do. Only he can save people. So we ask him to do it. Only he can, uh, can do the spiritual work that, that he so desperately, we so desperately need. It. Only he can do. Too often we ask for the wrong things. Most of our prayers are for things material wealth or health, and it's not that that's not important, but that's not the major thing, is it? Sometimes those requests are denied because God knows what we're asking for would ruin us. For example, when James and John came with their mother in, in Matthew chapter 20 to ask the Lord if in, the, in his kingdom they could sit on his right hand and on his left hand. That's the classic example of a request that was frivolous, consumed upon their own lust. Why did they ask if they could sit on the right or left hand in the kingdom? I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? The most telling thing about that is that they sent their mother to do it. And Jesus Christ told them, that's none of your business. You know, there's some things that we shouldn't pray about because it's none of our business. God has not told us to pray about those things, not revealed them to us. Jesus said, you know not what you ask. I think that could be said in a lot of prayer lists and prayer meetings. You know not what you're asking. There was a bitter cup to drink. There was a baptism to be baptized with, a suffering. See, they were wanting to set up his kingdom and usher it in and just get started right now on this ruling and reigning and changing of things. We so often want to rush to the blessing. We don't want to take the journey that it takes to get to the blessing. If we could just bypass Gethsemane and Calvary in our own spiritual experience and get to the blessing part, which we love to talk about. But Jesus Christ said, if any man will come after me, let him take up his cross and deny himself. A major proof or indicator that 
one has truly been saved is one's attitude toward the world, what he starts with. And I must close here. It's sad and amazing that the world influences how we as believers look at the world and even what we need or think we need or don't need. When the Bible addresses all those things, doesn't it? With food and raiment, they're with to be content. The Bible, there's not an area, of the, the Bible does not in principle or precept address what's concerning us. And we so often look to the world to get our marching orders or how to live out these lives, these pilgrimages, these journeys, these brief span of times. What is our life? A, a vapor, a mist. So in light of that, we ought to say, Lord, show us, teach us to number our days. That we may, what, apply our hearts unto wisdom. Verse 8 is a key to this whole chapter to me. It's an invitation. At once an invitation and a command. And a guarantee. I love guarantees, don't you? <laughs> There's so little in this world that's guaranteed. I love to see something that is. And here we have one of those. Those spiritual guarantees draw near to God. And what is the guarantee? He'll draw near to you. Sometimes we haven't seen an old friend for a long time. I have a college roommate. We were roommates for four years. He pastors in Virginia. We talk very little. We see each other very little. I know that I could call him in a minute and he'd be there. But when we get together, we pull up a chair, bend our ear close to the other, and pick up where we left off 30-something years ago. When I think of this term, draw near to God, I think of someone coming to someone very dear, and they pull up a chair. They don't just stand across the room and, you know, or some long distance. They come very close in a very intimate setting, and they move in toward that person, concentrating on them and wanting to get every word is so precious and so rare and so valued and as one shares their heart and the other one responds that's the picture there and the guarantee from the lord is that that if we draw near to him he'll draw near to us oh who wouldn't avail themselves of that glorious the creator sustainer of the universe bending down well this bible tells us that his ears are bent toward the cry of his children.